Join us for the Criterion Institute podcast as Joy Anderson, a global thought leader in business and social change, leads us through a series of discussions, interviews, frameworks, rants, and reframes that will help you better understand how to use finance as a tool for transformative systems change. I'm Joy Anderson, and this is the Criterion Institute podcast. So we use lenses to see more clearly. I think often of that existential moment when you try on new glasses and the floor is a new distance from you. It's always, it takes an adjustment when you're seeing more clearly. Lenses allow us to see patterns. They allow us to use those patterns to then do a more careful, more appropriate, more comprehensive analysis of what could happen and unintended consequences. Lenses, like a gender lens, don't actually create a new reality. They just allow us to see what's happening more clearly. So I look at two examples of where looking at unintended consequences, seeing more clearly would lead to better outcomes. So in the first segment, I look at the classic example of microfinance. This is often talked about in gender lens investing as one of the areas where we could have been more thoughtful in terms of how we are approaching microfinance to ensure that it didn't have unintended consequences. And so in some ways, the biggest consequence that microfinance has succeeded in is more women in debt. And there have been many other outcomes, but sort of questions, how do we see the unintended consequences of microfinance? The second is a very fun conversation that I had with Tia Subramanian, one of my colleagues at Criterion, looking at passport requirements. You're going to have to listen to learn more. Thanks. Over my professional career, one of the things that has grown most remarkably, most dramatically, is microfinance. I would say when I was starting in innovative finance 20 years ago, this was just at the beginning stages. There were experiments. There wasn't yet a broader industry around it. It was still difficult to raise money around it. Um, but it you know, it was, it, was, it was getting moving 20 years ago. In 2022, the market size of microfinance is $180 billion. $180 billion USD. That is a lot of money. And there have been some good things that have come from that. I think microfinance has been an area of innovation it's led to a push to get more mobile money, more financial services available, and, and innovations in those financial services, right? Crop insurance, 
personal forms of microfinance that will allow access to health care and all kinds of other pieces, there has been a sort of dramatic innovation pushed by the math of microfinance. What, what's really quite dramatic about microfinance is that you can make a loan of $100, of $20, of $50, $500, you know, whatever, whatever the number is. You can make that loan and not have it cost essentially the cost of the loan or the volume of the loan, right? In theory, it could be more than likely that making a $100 loan to a person in a remote community could cost you $100, which means the interest rates on that are going to be astronomical. The truth is the interest rates on microfinance are often astronomical. But the math has gotten better, right? People have driven down the costs of microfinance operations, found efficiencies within that. And and I do think that that is a remarkable innovation. It's a tool that we now have. It's an infrastructure that exists within the financial markets that didn't exist before. Banking for the poor, banking for those most marginalized is possible in a way that it wasn't possible before. Here's my challenge. I don't think we know what the impact of this is yet. There are many stories that tell that a loan to a, to a woman, because let's pause for a second and recognize that in general, microfinance is targeted to women. In fact, because often said in a good way, it's targeted to women because women are most likely to be left out of the financial equation. And therefore, we shouldn't be targeting women because look, great, microfinance has opened up loans for women. In opening up loans for women, what we can claim is that we've increased their debt. We can't definitively prove that microfinance loans have enhanced communities, stabilized economies, strengthened families. Maybe it's possible that those things happened. But the only thing we can definitively say is that some significant portion of that $180 billion is money that women are now indebted with that they weren't indebted before. And that's the piece that I think gets undercounted. We celebrate access to credit as if credit is innately good. What credit is, if it's just the credit part of it, it means that you have the potential to borrow. But once you have borrowed, it is not credit, it is debt. And the power dynamics that come from being somebody who is in debt are real. We end up with relationships, extensive amounts of gender-based violence that's documented inside of the industry and also documented inside of families as power dynamics shift, as women have a significant control of money that they didn't have before that often leads to new kinds of violence within the home. And so those power dynamics that shift as women have capital, but they also then have debt, 
which leads to one of my least favorite things in the planet, a microfinance divorce. So if women are treated beneficially within the microfinance industry and they can get access to loans and then lo and behold, my wife has a loan, it's in her name, and I will conveniently then file for a divorce. Lo and behold, the woman still has the debt, but I own the business that the debt was created for. I own the land. I own the livestock, whatever it is. It's been transferred to me because in like in all likelihood, the business was owned by the husband if the wife ended up being the one who had access to credit. So there's just power dynamics rife throughout microfinance. And so I want to balance the, I think there have been significant innovations, significant ability to innovate financial services for people who were primarily left out of those capital markets before. That is remarkable. But I want us to remember every time we say access to credit or access to financial services, what we most often mean is access to debt. And so that access translates into debt, and I move into a position where I am somebody who holds debt. So there is now $180 billion largely composed of debt held by women. There's good in that. There's choice in that. And there are power dynamics in that. One of my favorite conversations with you is as you and I are playing out sort of how gender and gender norms and power shows up in the world that you know, we end up focusing on some really interesting data points, but it's not just the data, it's the interpretation of the data. Passports and gender. What's up with that? So this came up for me recently because I was on the U.S. State Department website looking at their rules for passport renewals, and I happened to go on the one um, on the site that was, you know, how do children under 16 get passports? And the requirement for children under 16 to get a passport is that the child and two parents or guardians have to show up in person to apply. Unreal. It's unreal, right? I mean, I can see how someone would come up with that as a good rule from a, I don't know, identity verification or whatever point of view. But that is, when you think about gender dynamics, that is so problematic in so many ways. Do you know if this is a new rule? I don't know if it's a new rule. Um, I should ask people who had children in the last few years whether they had to do this. But it's right there on the State Department, right? It's a rule now. So that either way. Absolutely. And I, I didn't go into, you know, what forms of does everyone have to have, does it have to have a birth certificate with two parents' names on it? I mean, there are so many ways in, the, in which this is problematic. It, first of all, it may not be financially viable for two people to take time out of work and show up at the State Department. In cases where not all children have two parents, in cases where a child does have two parents, but there is conflict between the two parents, it's incredibly dangerous. It can be incredibly dangerous for to force them to have to show up together. What if there's a, an abusive situation? What if someone has lost an abusive situation? It creates more dependencies. It, it's a way for someone to exercise power over another partner, you know, to say, I won't show up in person unless X and Y. 
at a kind of deeper level, it also pushes a, a kind of normative idea of what the ideal family looks like that is just not, I, I think, is just something we at least we should be questioning and is not helpful. And especially in, a, in any place where you have deeply unequal gender dynamics, when you're pushing a certain normative idea of a family, the person who sacrifices for that family in a heterosexual partnership will usually be the woman, right? That some kind of burden to maintain that ideal family structure will usually fall on the person with less power. So, yeah, many ways in which this State Department policy, I think, is very problematic. I'm sure there are more. But I think what's and I think what's really interesting about it is it gets underneath the insidiousness, the sort of how much this is built into the structural inequities of sort of sure, you might prefer this kind of family structure, but we have cemented this into policies that mean it's not an option to not have that policy, not have that structure, that it becomes impossible to work in different ways without significant penalties. Exactly. And this is when people so often frame choices as individual choices when you're talking about the ability to make other choices means fighting all of these systems and structures that are built in that cost you socially, that cost you economically, that, you know, it's it's really difficult to, when you really start to think about all of the ways in which certain normative ideals and cultural norms are embedded into all of the systems we interact with every day, it's not very easy to to overcome them. And I wish people thought about it that way a little bit more because it would mean a lot less individual guilt and kind of self-blame, but hopefully would also inspire people to think about, okay, what are the actual structural changes that I should be pushing for rather than, you know, attributing all the blame to myself, to another individual, to someone I know. Yeah, it's just something that people miss, I think, about the way that power is embedded. Brilliant. Well, I am so glad that you're one of the many people fighting to shift how power is embedded. To learn more about our work, visit us at criterioninstitute.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Your reviews help our podcast reach a wider audience. Thanks for listening.